0: sun has set, and in the sun's absence, the dim lights of the stars are revealed. Eventually, I'll make my way to bed. But before that, this podcast. Welcome to it. It's Stellar Stories, a podcast about the constellations of the nighttime sky. And I'm the host, Jack Baston. For this episode, I want to tell a story of a man, a true story. One about an intellectual whose theories were so brilliant that, since their conception, they have colored the way people understand mythology. By learning about this man and his mythological theories, it is my hope that a person can gain at least one more perspective, one more way to appreciate a myth. This man I'm alluding to here is the man who needs an introduction. He was born in Switzerland in 1875 to a marital union between religion and a cult. That is, his father was a pastor, his mother was a psychic seer, his upbringing was both religious and skeptical. He grew up troubled by psychosomatic and nearly epileptic fits, and he was a victim of what he'd later describe as sexual assault by a man he once worshipped. When his father died, our young hero was 19, and he inherited little besides a need to go into debt and a sister and a mother to care for. But with the help of his own brilliance and his own tenacity and the bank account of his fabulously rich wife, he was able to overcome his debts and never have to work for his livelihood. As an adult... He measured over six feet in height, carried himself like a soldier, and wielded a charm that kept him surrounded by female admirers. Since he did live completely free from monetary concerns, this intellectual playboy with a dark side was able to devote his entire adulthood to the study of human thought patterns. Some might call this man the Bruce Wayne of psychoanalysis, but most people just call him Carl Jung. Carl Jung. He's one of those people who have influenced how it is we think about how we think. If you've ever been in a conversation with someone and one of you said something like, you know, I don't feel like... I identify as either an extrovert or an introvert. Then that is Carl Jung influencing your life. Jung's system of personality types popularized the terms extrovert and introvert. And this is the same system which would later be expanded into the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Jung also coined the term complex which appears in Freud's notorious Oedipal Complex. You can see Jung's influence, too, in Alcoholics Anonymous's spiritual tenets. These spiritual tenets were taken from some of Jung's psychiatric practices. Additionally, and this is the reason why this podcast is interested in him, Jung's mythological research was so profound that, just in its wake, it spawned a whole separate field of literary criticism and inspired the works of numerous mythologists, including one Joseph Campbell, upon whose work George Lucas formed the foundation for Star Wars. And these are just ways popular culture might be aware of the founder of analytical psychology, which is a school of therapy that is still taught today you can still find Jungian therapists out there, if you're interested. Though, it is certainly not the most popular form of psychotherapy. Jung, even in his lifetime, made little effort to make his work popular. Though, I like Jung. He's a genius, and he's got some great lines. Like, when he was asked to publish a summary of his ideas an act which might have helped his work appeal to the popular crowd, Young replied, I see no sense in publishing a condensation of papers in which I went to so much trouble to discuss the subject in detail. I should have to omit all my evidence and rely on a type of categorical statement which would not make my results any easier to understand. The characteristic ruminant activity of ungulate animals, which consists in the regurgitation of what has already been chewed over, is anything but stimulating to my appetite. See? He's fun. Only by knowing a subject within its context can we come to understand a subject. That's what Jung was getting at. While his collected works do span 20 volumes, Young wished to discourage people from judging his work unless they knew it in its context. Although, all 20 volumes will not be covered here. Young's perspective lies far enough off the beaten path that, only by contextualizing our way through the tall grass all the way over to his trail, might we possibly be able to reach him and come to see things as he did? So, get out your contextual machete, look out for snakes, and let's start with getting more context about Young. Oh, I should mention before we start the contextual hike off the beaten path that, for this episode, I have one overarching narrative. That narrative is the narrative of man versus the dragon, and I can find no way to tell it without also telling the story of Jungian archetypes. To make this narrative easier to follow, I'm breaking it up into smaller chapters. With chapter titles, there will be some expectation of where I'm going, and you'll be able to mark off where it is I've been. There will be six chapters. My first chapter starts now. Chapter 1. Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud Jung is often remembered in regard to his relationship with Freud. Theirs was a relationship as filled with hopes and with dreams as it was with dream analyses. Yet, like all dreams, the relationship would eventually end. And, also like a dream, when it ended, Carl Jung would be left just sort of disoriented, confused, and half-conscious. Dreams were big. They were big in this relationship, and they were big in both Jung's and Freud's daily lives. They were so because dream analysis formed the foundation for the psychiatric discipline which Freud had established. Freud's discipline, known as psychoanalysis, was the first scientific mental health service available to the public. Previously, institutionalized patients had had access to mental health treatment, but psychoanalysis was pretty much the first effective treatment available for them as well. In order for treatment of any patient to be successful, the dream was essential. As it was through the dream that a patient's unconscious mind could be revealed and diagnosed. According to the popular theory of the time, popular theory popularized by Freud, thoughts which a person is conscious and aware of are influenced by thoughts which a person is unconscious and unaware of. So called unconscious thoughts include stuff like repressed emotions, underlying desires, And subliminal thoughts. Collectively, all unconscious processes can be referred to as the unconscious. The existence of the unconscious was revealed through studies such as Carl Jung's work with word association games or Freud's work with dreams. Dreams were also pretty important to Jung. Jung's autobiography is titled Memories, Dreams, Reflections. It's titled this because the autobiography, rather than focusing on events which Young took part in, or on people whom Young interacted with, focuses instead on the events and images of Jung's mind. I'd love to quote the whole book, but I won't. Here's one quote where Young ponders the exterior events of his life. Perhaps these outer experiences were never so very essential anyhow. Or were so, only in that they coincided with phases of my inner development. Young did have relationships which he valued, but the segments of his exterior life were always viewed through the syntax of his interior life, his relationships always punctuated by his dreams. Already when Young entered the field of psychiatry, Freud, who was 19 years older, had established himself as a prominent, if unrespected, figure in the field. Freud was the self-proclaimed king of psychoanalysis, though he was in disrepute with older, established psychiatrists because, instead of basing his theories upon historical precedents, Freud had chosen to base his theories upon evidence. When Carl Jung also began gathering data and also actually performing psychological tests, he came to find himself in the awkward position of supporting the unpopular Freud and Freud's theories. Despite some initial hesitance about this, and despite warnings from colleagues, Jung, in 1906, began to correspond with Freud, and the two immediately hit it off. For the first year of their friendship, they only exchanged letters. But when Jung did travel from Switzerland to Austria in order to visit Freud, the two spent their first day talking together for 13 hours straight. Afterwards, they met up with Freud's friend Alfred Adler and all got down to the real business of analyzing each other's dreams. Freud analyzed Jung's dream. And this would be one of many times when they'd analyze one another's dreams. The precise contents of Jung's dream are, unfortunately, not remembered to history. But through the dream's analysis, Freud revealed that Jung saw himself as the heir to Freud's field of psychoanalysis. And not just that, but Jung also held a latent desire to overthrow Freud and to usurp Freud's position as king of that field. This was a joke, a Freudian joke. Carl Jung harbored a desire to kill a father figure and take the father's place? Ha ha, ha. The joke, however, wasn't merely for giggles, not for Freud at least. For it is in humor, as it is in dreams, where one can find an expression of one's true desires. Indeed, Freud did wish to pass his kingdom of psychoanalysis on to Jung, and, in time, Jung did come to see Freud as a father figure. Jung tried actively to overcome this projection, while Freud indulged in his fantasy of being king. In the course of the hundreds of letters the two wrote each other over their eight-year-long friendship, Freud repeatedly addressed Carl as heir, or as the Joshua to my Moses, or as my crowned prince, my crowned prince and heir, Carl Jung. However, the crown, as it does, bore heavy on the young prince's mind. Jung did not wish to be Freud's heir. Freud would have wanted his kingdom and its laws maintained as he set them down, Carl Jung, though, was an empirical scientist, and Jung just could not allow his science to be constrained to Freud's belief system. Jung wanted the freedom to follow truth down whatever path it might take him. Still, for the present, Jung did wish to learn from Freud, and Jung had no wish to draw a king's ire by rejecting a fantasy so clearly important to him, so... While Jung did refuse the crown, it was an internal, unspoken refusal. Unfortunately, as any psychoanalyst would know, problems don't just go away when you don't talk about them. Freud's fantasy persisted. Even if Jung didn't verbally refuse the role of heir, Freud could, at least unconsciously, pick up on the refusal. And, at the times when Jung failed to act in accordance with Freud's projected desire, then Freud's unconscious found a way of making the fantasy manifest anyways. In 1909, three years into their relationship, when Jung and Freud were journeying together across Europe and over the sea to America, Freud's fantasy became too much for Freud. They began their travels in Bremen, Germany, and one night there, as they dined with a friend, the conversation turned to the topic of mummified bodies. Mummified bodies which had been naturally preserved from prehistoric times in nearby peat bogs. Young was only vaguely familiar with the whole topic, so in the course of the conversation, he confused these mummified bodies with other preserved bodies kept in the catacombs beneath the city of Bremen. Freud, all throughout Jung's confusion, was growing agitated. Why are you concerned with these corpses? He queried several times. And, when Jung persisted on the topic, Freud fainted. Schlump. When Freud recovered from the fainting spell, he told Jung that, all of Young's talk about corpses had revealed that Young held a death wish against Freud. Later, Jung would write, I was alarmed by the intensity of his fantasies, so strong that obviously they could cause him to faint. Actually, this wasn't even the only time Freud fainted after Young made some vague reference to death, but I'm not going to talk about the other time. I'm just trying to point out that they're pretty tight-knit friends, though certain topics touching on Freud's fantasy elicited a strong underlying tension. And so, during their overseas journey to America, when, for seven weeks, the two were together daily and habitually analyzing each other's dreams, because of this tension, Jung took caution discussing the contents of one specific dream. This dream that I want to describe isn't really all that dramatic, but it would come to direct the course of Young's life. And, if we're going to tell a story about Young, it would hardly be an accurate representation without at least one dream sequence. So, here's a description of his dream. In the dream, Young found himself on the upper floor of a two-story house. Though he wasn't familiar with this house, He knew that it was his house. He was observing the antique furnishings of the upper floor, and, all the while growing quite pleased with himself for owning such a refined house, When an urge to explore and to know his house, seized him. Young descended down the stairs and walked all around the first floor. This floor had dim lighting, brick-laid floors, and fine medieval furnishings. After thoroughly exploring the first floor, Young came to a heavy door. Beyond the door, a stone staircase led to the basement. Young descended. There was even less lighting down there than on the first floor, but there was enough light for Young to admire the basement's brick walls, which seemed to date from the Roman times. At this point, Young's interest grew intense. Examining the floor's stone slabs... Young discovered a ring attached to one of the slabs. When he pulled upon the ring and heaved up the slab, there, in the floor, he found another set of stone stairs leading deeper down into darkness. Again, Young descended. At the bottom, he came to a cave seemingly cut out and into the rock. Dust blanketed the cavern floor. Beneath the dust, Young could make out pieces of broken pottery— the remains of some ancient primitive culture. Down in the dust, groping, exploring, he came upon two very old and partly disintegrated human skulls. Then, Jung awoke. When Freud analyzed this dream, it was upon these two skulls that he fixated. Jung tried to avoid the topic of the skulls, but Freud kept returning to them repeatedly urging Jung to uncover some latent desire attached to the skulls. He pressed Jung on what he thought of the skulls, and whose skulls they might be. It was clear what Freud was driving at. But Jung had already formed his own interpretation of the dream, and Jung was convinced that the owners of the skulls were unimportant. The skulls, after all, were old and disintegrating. Still... Freud persisted on the skulls. Finally, although Jung knew his actions would not be above reproach, the best way he could see through this situation was to lie. And so, he lied. Jung told Freud that the skulls belonged to his wife and his sister-in-law, of course. Upon hearing this, Freud immediately showed signs of relief. The most important part of the dream... Freud determined, was the Skulls. The whole dream revealed that Jung held a latent death wish towards these two women, and that was something Jung would have to work through. As I already mentioned, Jung dismissed this interpretation before Freud even gave it, though it was an internal, unspoken dismissal, one more unspoken disagreement to add to the growing tension between the two. According to Jung, his dream symbolically depicted the true nature of the psyche. In the dream, the top story of Jung's home represented Jung's consciousness. It had a lived-in sort of vibe. The lower floors represented unconscious levels of the psyche. As Jung had descended through his home, each lower floor had been darker and with decorations of an older style than the above floor. Each lower floor symbolically represented an older generation's level of conscious awareness. The lowest of the floors had been the dim dwelling of a primitive, where the light of consciousness offered little illumination. Just as real-world caves, once inhabited by primitives, were before inhabited by animals, So too did the lowest floor of the psyche represent a consciousness bordering between human and animal. And yet, it was upon this foundation which all the other floors were built. Similar to Dream Young, the real Young felt compelled to explore the lower levels of the human unconscious. This dream of the house... Jung would refer to as a guiding image, which guided him down a new path in life. This new path would, in a couple years, lead Jung to publish a book directly refuting Freud's concept of the unconscious. One example of this refutation is Carl Jung brazenly purported that most individuals did not want to commit incest with their mother. Jung claimed that incest showed up in culture as a religious symbol, and the symbol was not based on personal desire. Freud would not hear of this. Such a stance on incest would signal the end for their relationship. Nasty letters would be sent. Hurtful words would be said. Jung broke with Freud's beliefs, and so Freud broke with Jung. The Breakup sent Young into a dark depression. Most of his so-called friends from work stopped associating with him, and he himself gave up on giving lectures. At night, he became haunted by bad dreams, and in the day, he would periodically lose himself where he'd go off into his backyard and start building these miniature houses out of rocks. It was around this time that he put a revolver in his bedside table. When he could no longer bear it, he would kill himself. The world had become like darkness to Young, and it would take him about five years, from 1913 to 1918, to escape this darkness. Only after plunging into the depths of his own unconscious, like Dante plunging into the depths of hell, Only after encountering inner demon after inner demon, and reaching the bottom, could he there begin his ascent up and out the other side of this hell. Only after he understood the unconscious could he vindicate to himself his beliefs regarding it. By doing so, he could likewise vindicate his refutation of Freud. Freud's unconscious was an unconscious filled with personal experiences. It was populated with sexual desires, which had been conscious earlier in life, but had since been repressed. Jung's unconscious was in part this place of personally repressed experiences, not all sexual, but all unique to the individual, and also part an inherited unconscious, which is the same for all human beings, Jung would provide the proof for his unconscious by a thorough study of archaeology, astronomy, alchemy, psychology, and mythology. Now, one thing worth noting, and maybe I should have noted it earlier, and that is, dream analysis was not new to the world. It's had thousands of years of historical precedence. Recall Joseph, in the book of Genesis, who becomes the pharaoh's vizier after correctly interpreting the pharaoh's dream. Or, recall that, in Homer, Greek gods deliver their messages to heroes through dreams. Historical precedents for a belief would form a premise for much of Jung's school of thought. That premise was that any belief which has been held for thousands of years should be taken as psychologically true. This means that a belief may not be based in fact, but it is demonstrated to have value by its existence across generations or across cultures. If a belief didn't have value, and it didn't fill a niche in our minds, our societies would not be able to sustain the belief. I could go into a lot of examples, but for now, one such example that fills a niche in our minds is that it is psychologically important for humans to understand the universe, and to understand their place in it, even if the belief is irrational. Sherlock Holmes, champion of rational thought, scorned the knowledge that the Earth revolves around the sun. What the deuce is it to me? If we went round the moon, it would not make a pennyworth of difference to me or to my work. Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character. While there exist professions which do require a comprehension of the movement of planets, the value most of us place in such knowledge is unrelated to the knowledge's practical value. Don't get me wrong, understanding is its own reward. That is precisely my point. Understanding some things are their own psychological reward, and also societal reward. One has to account somewhat for society's pressure in these things, but Presumably, society must get its collective values from something. Jung studied mythologies and other belief systems in order to determine what society's collective psychologically valuable beliefs are. As the concept of psychological truth relates to dreams, one need not believe that gods use dreams to foretell the future, but there's psychological value in believing that the function of dreams is to prepare you mentally for the future. That is, dreams prep your mind so that you're ready to face the day, so that you can better handle what comes next. Chapter 2. Looking Out for Snakes Okay, what patterns do appear across mythologies? How do our instincts affect the stories we tell? To get into particulars, let us ask... How do our instincts affect our mythological representation of snakes? I have read books about humans, and, in these books, I read that human beings like to shy away from crediting instincts with any influence over their thoughts, let alone their literature. Still, people admit that instincts do influence their actions. We do have instinctual, so-called, knee-jerk reactions— like when we instinctually yawn after seeing someone else yawn, or when, without thinking, we look in the same direction as someone who is staring, or when responding to danger, we either flee or we fight. Carl Jung was of the persuasion that if an informed, intelligent person is willing to accept that we have our actions influenced by instincts, then that same intelligent person should have the same opinion towards accepting that our imagination, perception, and thinking are likewise influenced by inborn elements. Though, if we were to accept that instincts do influence everyone's thoughts, that's not to say that we need believe humans are all the same cookie-cutter, genetically predetermined machine. No. All of us, human beings, We are all, definitely, unique snowflakes. And, just as water molecules and snowflakes all form along the same crystalline structures, so too do we form along the same genetic structures, and still form unique individuals. Human beings are rarely a matter of nature versus nurture. They are more a merge of nature and nurture. Carl Jung, though, did want statements backed up with context, and I think fear, like a fear of snakes, is a good example to start with in order to demonstrate how instincts might influence thought patterns. Fear is a good example because people know how overwhelmingly fear can affect their thoughts. Fear doesn't influence thoughts so much as it completely controls thoughts. So if people were to have an instinctual fear, it would naturally follow that such an instinct can have a strong effect on their thought patterns. I've seen a study that a fear of snakes, aka ophidiophobia, is the most common phobia to afflict people. Other common phobias include fear of heights, fear of spiders, and fear of flying. But for most, say, Americans, especially those living in urban areas, Americans who rarely or never see a snake, let alone a dangerous one, their fear of snakes is without grounds and experience. The average American would be better off fearing cars or cigarettes or bacon, as they are each more likely to result in a life-threatening situation. But fears of such objects must be taught. Some fears come naturally. There is something within us that has us in our mythologies. Imagine a Medusa with snakes for hair. A Medusa which petrifies all who might gaze upon her head. Snakes feature with prominence in mythologies around the world. You might expect them to always appear in negative roles. They don't, necessarily, but they do appear in roles worthy of awe. In Norse mythology, there is the snake Nithog, who gnaws upon the roots of the world tree. And there is the Midgard serpent, Jormungandr, who slays and is slain by Thor. In Babylonian mythology, the primordial ocean Tiamat and the poisonous monsters she creates, those are all identified as serpents. And even in Christianity, the devil himself is equated with the Leviathan, that enormous sea serpent which lurks beneath the surface. In Australia, it was the aboriginal's rainbow serpent who created humankind, and, in America, it was the Aztec's plumed serpent, Quetzalcoatl, who first started the Wheel of Time spinning. All of these snakes I've just mentioned are sometimes referred to by the name of a certain mythological creature. This mythological creature is one which looms large across even the modern collective fantasy. Indeed, the mythological snake is also named the mythological dragon. Dragons are really just big snakes. The word dragon comes to us from Latin draco, which meant snake. And all the dragons which appear in ancient Roman or Greek mythology are meant to be imagined as just big snakes. Even the traditional role of the dragon, the role of a guardian of treasure, can be viewed as a reappropriation of the real world snake's territorial instinct. When a human approaches a snake, unlike most other animals, the snake will rear up at the human, ready to strike. With regard to modern dragons, Asian dragons, like those of, say, China or Japan, appear similarly snake like, while in the West, just like Europeans themselves, dragons have grown a more rotund appearance. Like the Midgard Sormir girding the world round, there are a lot of places the mythological snake shows up, and I could continue to give more and more examples. However, if you're unconvinced by hand-picked examples and would like quantitative numbers measuring how important the snake is, I don't have that data. I can say that, out of the standard list of 48 constellations listed by Ptolemy in the 2nd century AD, four of those 48 are snake images. Hydra, Serpens, Catus, and Draco. But we'll come back to Draco. When a symbol is so readily accepted as important across cultures, there is, as Carl Jung would say, something psychologically true about the symbol. If the snake didn't resonate with us, we would not yield the preeminent recognition to it. There is a psychological readiness to mythologize the serpent. It's been with us since, well, the beginning. In the beginning, the earth was without form, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. It was good, and God set about making a bunch of complementary opposites. God made the day and the night. God made the land and the sea. And God made Adam. Then God real quick borrowed Adam's rib and from it made Eve so that they might keep each other company. It was good, but Adam and Eve didn't know it was good yet. Their ignorance remained till one day a serpent called to Eve This serpent had coiled itself up around a branch in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From his perch there, he looked down and deceived Eve into taking a fruit from the tree. Now, this next part of the story comes not from the King James translation of the book of Genesis, or from any of the translations of the Hebrew Bible I'm aware of, but from a loose translation. Eve glanced from the serpent to the fruit and back. With caution, Eve leapt into the branches of the tree. She swung herself up, and up, till she came to the fruit-bearing branch. Swiftly did her fur-covered hand snatch the fruit. Eve bit in, and her eyes were opened. In triumph, she let out a primate howl, before vaulting to a nearby tree and swinging her way to Adam. The most dangerous predators, for humankind's relatives, the monkeys, are big cats, big birds, and snakes. When a monkey, even one raised in captivity, is presented with a snake, the monkey will take notice and give the slithering creature a wide berth. This is to say, monkeys exhibit behavior demonstrating a phobia of snakes. Just like us! Humans and monkeys share a lot of traits. The fact that we share a fear of snakes suggests that this instinctual fear goes way back, back to a shared ancestor who lived tens of millions of years ago. When we try to understand certain details about a mythology, we do well to look at the history of the people who came up with the mythology. And, sometimes, it can prove illuminating to look back deep into history back into evolutionary history. In her swag-brilliant book, The Fruit, the Tree, and the Serpent, anthropologist Lynn A. Isbell provides evidence that over 60 million years ago, our ancestors had one primary predator, the snake. In evolution, predator-prey relationships can often be credited as a driving force for adaptations. Predator evolves to catch prey, Prey evolves to not be killed by predator. Professor Isbell theorizes that, for tens of millions of years, such a predator-prey relationship with snakes was a primary driving force for our ancestors' adaptations. I don't want to get bogged down in proofs. I would prefer for proofs to form the solid ground upon which I can walk. So, to fast forward a minute 50 to when I summarize all the sentences I'm about to say, The point I'm emphasizing here is that, during a definitive stage in evolutionary development, the snake played a titular role. Because it played a titular role, the snake seared itself into our ancestors' genes. Then, the snake, along with many of our ancestors' other genes, has been passed down to present-day human beings. Okay, back to Professor Isbell's evolutionary theory. That theory is that in order to escape snakes, our direct ancestors adapted by getting better and better vision, till they could swiftly identify non moving camouflaged snakes. Our distant evolutionary aunts and uncles, those who became monkeys or other primates, they adapted in other ways to escape snakes. Our ancestors got better vision. This neurological development of better upon better eyes coincided with a neurological development of bigger upon bigger brains. Both developments were made possible by a transition to a diet higher upon higher in fruits. These changes all created a positive feedback loop. A diet higher in sugar allows for more neuron growth, while better vision makes it easier to spot ripe, colorful fruits and also A bigger brain makes it easier to remember in which trees fruit can be found. So, the more fruit the primate eats, the more sugar it gets to fuel neuron growth. The more neuron growth, the more fruit the primate finds. From all this, the better vision which has been gained enabled primates to recognize and react to snakes, and thus to survive and pass on their genes. In summary, Isbel theorizes that for tens of millions of years, the major factors in our ancestors' evolution were the fruit, the tree, and the serpent. The point I'm emphasizing here is that during a definitive stage in evolutionary development, the snake played a titular role. When a human child's brain is developing and that child undergoes some traumatic event, the child is scarred for the rest of his or her life by that traumatic event. In comparison, millions of years of trauma must in some ways have shaped the brain's evolutionary development. It's more than coincidence that in the book of Genesis, a serpent leads humans to a fruit, and from that fruit they acquire knowledge. There's something instinctually, psychologically true to this story. And... It's kind of impressive to think about. As Professor Isbell remarks, I like thinking that that part of the story, the moment when Eve decides to eat from the tree of knowledge, is a greater than 2,000-year-old attempt to explain our ability to perceive, assess, and respond to novel situations. This story of Eve and the serpent is as close to evolutionary history as the tellers of the story could get with their understanding of how the world worked. It's impressive. I am impressed. There are other stories in mythology which parallel the Eden story. Greek mythology has a couple, but one concerns the constellation Draco, so I'll come back to it later. The story of the Buddha parallels the Eden story. The Buddha, it is said, obtained his enlightenment while sitting beneath a tree, and in some stories... While the Buddha meditated beneath the tree, he was guarded by a great cobra. Another myth which comes to mind is relatively more recent, and that is the story of Sir Isaac Newton and the discovery of gravity. The popular story goes that Newton was sitting beneath a tree. Suddenly, an apple fell from that tree and knocked him on the head. Thus was he granted with the comprehension of gravity. This story is true, or at least based on a true story. And I believe it's also true that Buddha did meditate under a tree. And that sacrifices in tribute to the Norse god Odin were hanged from the boughs of trees. And that Jesus did die on a symbolic tree. That symbolic tree, known as the cross, was not the original symbol early Christians chose for their religion but the tree-like symbol became the predominant symbol. It is also true that when Christian missionaries went out across land and across seas to everywhere spread the stories of the virgin birth, of the mass, and of Jesus' sacrifice, the missionaries thought the devil had gone before them. For, time and again, they encountered cultures which told their story back to them. Stories of another virgin birth— of another mass, and of another sacrifice. Whether the story is true or not isn't relevant. Even whether two of the stories stem from a shared source is only somewhat relevant. Certain story patterns can be seen to resonate with the human mind across time and across cultures. The same story with the same characters, but with different details, appears again, and again, and again. Carl Jung, you know, our hero, Carl Jung, when he had fallen deep into the chaos of his unconscious, there, in his own fantasies, did he too repeatedly meet with patterns. Patterns which he met also in myths, in alchemy, and in the unconsciouses of his own patients. Each time Young met with a new pattern, like one of a snake or one of an old man paired with a young girl, each time, it felt like a new trial for him to have to work through. But by working through it, and by becoming aware of these patterns, he came to see hints of order in the seeming chaos of the unconscious. It would only be by classifying pattern after pattern, that Jung would more fully uncover this order in the unconscious, and, thereafter, be able to return order to his own life. All that, and more, right now, in my third chapter, Chapter 3, Archetypes and the Psychology of the Unconscious. You know how human beings really like to group and to stereotype? Yes, I know. There's something innately human about such categorization. Something in our minds allows us to swiftly identify familiar objects in our surroundings and immediately know how to interact with them, or to avoid them. This is how we interact with people, too. We fit them into a category. If we're actively trying to know or remember such people... Then we come to differentiate them from whatever category we initially grouped them in. This ability to generalize and categorize is a basis for human interactions and a basis for retention of information. Carl Jung's theory of archetypes is, more or less, the theory that people are born with prepackaged categories in which they do this sort of categorization. The prepackaged categories, which were theoretically born with, are for experiences that a human being can typically be expected to experience. Your typical human being will be raised by a parent, grow up, find people to love and to trust, encounter people to distrust, raise children, grow old, and eventually prepare for death. An archetype is a framework through which we generalize and categorize any such typical experience or typical person we meet with. Like a baby bird, peeping out of its egg, ready to imprint the idea of mother on the first thing it spots, so too a baby human comes into this world, ready to attach his or her love to some parental unit. Likewise, adults are predisposed to recognize babies as cute and worthy of their love. Human beings are more complex than birds, so they don't treat the first creature to stand in front of them for a couple hours as their mother. Similarly, what sort of baby noises we adults might make when confronted with a baby can differ depending upon the individual or upon the culture. Archetypes are frameworks in the mind. But, metaphorically speaking, they're like grooves in the earth, along which water flows, and within which lakes or rivers might form. The grooves are in the mind. How they get filled up can differ with each mind. So, a baby is born with a groove called a mother archetype, and this archetype is filled in by some person who can be a source of shelter and nutriment. The adult has a groove called a child archetype. This gets filled in by small young humans, whom adults will then consider as in need of protection, learning, and care. Although there are, young comments, as many archetypes as there are typical situations, the most commonly discussed archetypes are those through which humans perceive other humans. So these archetypes include categories like mother or child, but they also include categories such as enemy and lover. If you want to hear about archetypes from the man himself, Carl Jung defines an archetype more in terms of how a human being tells themselves a story. The archetype is, Jung says, an inherited tendency of the human mind to form representations of mythological motifs, representations that vary a great deal without losing their basic pattern. Although the concrete shape in which they express themselves is more or less personal, their general pattern is collective, just as animal instincts vary a good deal in different species and yet serve the same general purpose. We do not assume that each newborn animal creates its own instincts as an individual acquisition, and we cannot suppose either that Human beings invent and produce their, specifically human, modes of reaction with every new birth. Like the instincts, the collective thought patterns of the human mind are innate and inherited. Okay, back to Jack talking. I feel like, so far, everything that's been said in this chapter is a fair explanation of what an archetype is. I'll summarize, though. An archetype is a framework in the mind through which we categorize and understand typical experiences. Our understanding of these typical experiences works similar to a mythology. We understand events by telling a story, and we understand people by making them certain types of characters, like mother, child, lover, or enemy. Certain types of stories are archetypes Certain types of people are archetypes. However, I didn't want to do a podcast on archetypes unless I could provide context to help people believe in archetypes. This won't be a proof of archetypes, but all the context I provide for the rest of this chapter is the context which helped me approach having a belief in the existence of Jungian archetypes, or in the existence of something similar. On the last episode, Like, four months ago, I talked about how language gives order to thoughts. There are, however, thoughts humans have which exist outside language. We can think in images, but such images provide us with a symbolic representation that's similar to language. Both images and language help create ordered thoughts. We can also think without order. When we act upon emotions or upon gut instincts, we act quote-unquote without thinking. Emotions and gut instincts affect our thought processes, though I know that people aren't used to talking about instincts. So, instead of talking directly about instincts, I'm going to talk about our emotions and the effect emotions have on our thoughts. When our thoughts are driven by an emotion, like an emotional fear of snakes, our thoughts are not ordered. They're scared and scattered and irrational. However, and surprise, here's a fun mindfulness tip for you. You can reduce how much an emotion is affecting you by identifying it. Hypothetically, let's say you're in a situation and you're acting emotionally. And then, you go, oh, I'm acting emotionally. Then, in that instant, you stop acting so emotionally, and you start acting with more cognizance. Identification of what your mind is doing returns some order to your thoughts, but it doesn't eliminate an emotion. Your emotional state will still be affecting your thoughts. Though, continuing to think about your emotion, or, better yet, starting to talk about your emotion will allow you to work through your emotion. I'm gonna pull an Ouroboros on this one and here we'll begin circling our way back and eating our own tail. The process of talking through your emotions forms one of the pillars upon which Freud's kingdom was established. In psychoanalysis, The goal is for a patient to consciously address their unconscious problems. The patient does so through therapeutic talking, as guided by an analyst. This does work, and, under Freud's guidance, talking as a cure was the predominant approach of psychiatry for the better part of the 20th century. The more one talks through one's problems, the more one orders one's thoughts and, consequently, the less control the problem or the unordered emotion has. Currently, prevailing psychiatric practice goes even farther than talking the cure. A patient is now expected to act the cure. Talking, actions, and lifestyle, all behaviors contribute to one's mental state. So, the current idea is that if one transitions from having negative behaviors into having positive behaviors that can help transform one's mental state from negative to positive. Psychiatry is the healing practice focused on mental health, but the upkeep of a positive mental health is something that's been necessary throughout all human existence. Long before the age of psychiatry, Did mythology and storytelling help to order one's thoughts? Long before Freud, did people use language to fit the world into a structure they found psychologically true? Furthermore, and I don't mean to bite off more than I can chew, but before there was behavior change-focused therapy, there have long since been ritual, pilgrimage, prayer, and other healing practices with a focus on behavior. Today's methods and traditional methods are done from very different perspectives. Comparing the two is like comparing an apple and an orange. Though, both an apple and an orange provide you with nutrients to help keep you healthy. And, throughout history and across cultures, there's typically been a system which provides us with nutritional health, just as there's been one which provides us with positive mental health. Babylonian astrologers ordered the unknowns in their universe through the binding power of words. Freudian patients lay on couches and explain their dreams. Across cultures, humans bind their unspeakable fears by speaking them. When we're feeling overwhelmed by some emotion, talking through it does help. I know this is true. And yet... And yet... For the greater part of history, human beings haven't looked out and described the exterior world as emotions. When our ancestors created their mythology, emotions were only attributes of anthropomorphized gods or beasts or plants or stones, goddesses of erotic love, gods of war, gods of madness. The foundation of the human mind is a preoccupation with recognizing and expecting other human beings. Emotions may motivate people, but the classic human can spend day in and day out obsessing over what some other human thinks of them, or what they think of some other human. Our innate tendencies lead us to see and project human figures and human perspectives onto the universe, And these human figures and human perspectives are archetypes. Like emotions, archetypes aren't things you can get rid of. But unlike emotions, archetypes are the subject of this podcast. And also not well known. So before you can identify how an archetype is affecting your thoughts, you have to first familiarize yourself with their basic frameworks. According to Jung, familiarizing yourself with these archetypes could very well be your purpose in life. Jung purported that if life were to have an innate purpose, that purpose would be the expansion of conscious awareness. Since archetypes unconsciously influence your thoughts, their influence initially hinders your goal. Though, by becoming aware of archetypes, you can become conscious of their influence. By becoming aware of archetypes, you can fulfill your innate purpose of expanding what you're consciously aware of. Jung also referred to this whole process as the process of becoming an individual. By becoming aware of archetypes, you empower yourself to differentiate from your archetypes, and then to make your thoughts your own. In this way, you become an individual. So, whoa. If you weren't already pumped out of your mind about archetypes, then hopefully that was clickbait enough for you to listen to my upcoming list of archetypes. I do want to go through a couple of the more prominent archetypes just to get a feel for them. Coming to understand archetypes is not only a major point of this episode, but also, I guess, of life. Speaking of clickbait you won't believe which archetype Jung credited as having the most disturbing effect on your psyche. Number one most disturbing is the shadow. The shadow is the name of the archetype for a disliked person. Now, you might be wondering, having one's thoughts affected by emotion is easy enough to understand, but how does thinking in terms of an archetype like the shadow archetype work? One could respond that, When one thinks in terms of archetypes, one mythologizes the target of one's thoughts. When we think with the shadow, we demonize the target. Through this archetype, we throw shade, we other, and we dehumanize. The shadow is the archetype which makes your neighbor a monster, and it is also the archetype which allows and fuels every war. Human beings are predisposed to recognize other human beings, but in order to wage war, we must be able to recognize some human beings as inhuman. The shadow is the archetype which allows that. As far as names go, the shadows is pretty on point. Archetypes, Jung says, usually reveal themselves when we project them on others. So... Just as our actual shadow is something which our bodies cast out on the world and thereby darken whatever our shadow covers, so too does the shadow archetype. Likewise, those who are the target of our shadow archetype appear as but a shadow of who they truly are. Also, though the shadow is something we cast out, it is rarely anything we would identify with. Also also, like our real shadow, The shadow archetype isn't something we can get rid of. We can, through understanding, allow our eyes to adjust to objects in our shadow, but that doesn't eliminate the shadow. And the second most frequently disturbing archetype is the anima, or animus. This is the archetype people project upon a potential lover. A human being is remarkably proficient at choosing a random stranger to be the perfect romantic partner. This is called love at first sight, and it comes with a lot of assumptions. Those assumptions are merely the first of many expectations in a relationship which fail to match reality. As you surely know, some blatantly false expectations cause conflict. But love also will blind one to a partner's faults. Human beings can fit even the partner they know best into an idealized image. They can refuse to acknowledge their partner's negative traits. All such expectations, not based in reality, are of the anima and of her mysterious ways. When this archetype appears in mythology, its aspect is complementary in nature. That is to say, often mythological pairings come with traits which complement each other. In mythology, as in psychology, we default to seeing in terms of presumed opposites. We see black and white, good and evil, heaven and earth, fire and ice, yin and yang, etc. This isn't just for romantic pairings, though, yes, people have an innate predilection for shipping presumed opposites together. To give some mythological examples, There is the Babylonian primordial coupling of fresh water and salt water, Apsu and Tiamat. They're both water, but different types. One falls from the sky above, the other comes up from the earth below. Also, the Japanese sibling gods, Amaterasu and Tsukiyomi, respectively, goddess of the sun and god of the moon, were both born of their father's eyes, the female sun born from his left eye, the male moon born from his right. Lastly, the Greek goddess Aphrodite is the renowned pinnacle of beauty. Her husband Hephaestus is super ugly. They're perfect for each other, like a match made in heaven. This Jungian archetype also divides along a presumed complementary gender binary. Anima is a feminine Latin noun, which means soul. Animus Is the same word with a Latin masculine ending. So, the anima is meant to represent the perception of the complementary female inside a man's brain, while the animus is the perception of the complementary male inside a woman's brain. Men get an anima, women get an animus. Furthermore, in Jungian psychology, people of the male gender default to having a tendency for rational intelligence while those of the female gender default to having a tendency for emotional intelligence. The archetype persists these projections. The anima in a man projects emotional intelligence onto a woman. The animus in a woman projects rational intelligence onto a man. There's much more to this archetype than gender, as it is also the archetype of one's soul, but. However your expectations of your other half manifest in you, there will be expectations you're not supposed to take as realistic. If you are on your way to becoming a consciously aware individual, then this archetype will not help you make judgments based in reality. An archetype directs your thoughts in certain ways. By becoming consciously aware of your anima's default directions, you can recognize thoughts directed by it, and then make judgments not based upon such thoughts. I would love to spend more time doting on the anima, but these archetypes are all just quick previews I give while we make our way to the archetypal hero of this episode. There are archetypal heroes. Heroes and myths are either a representation of the so-called Great Mother Archetype, or the so-called Old Man Archetype. These archetypes are lower on the list of most trauma-inducing archetypes, yet they are the next and last group of archetypes I want to describe for this chapter. As archetypes are inherited categories for typical situations, so each typical relationship gets an inherited archetype. There is, as I've mentioned, a child archetype for expectations we might have of a child. For the inherited expectations we have of a mother, there is the Great Mother Archetype. And Jung wasn't aware that fathers played any important role in a child's upbringing, so while there is a Father Archetype, Jung generally referred to that as the Old Man Archetype. These are the baseline archetypes for adults. They're default ways to perceive people older than you. In mythology, These archetypes appear as all manner of projections. Some are positive, some are negative. The mother can be Mother Nature, who provides all her children with shelter and with fertile lands from horizon to horizon. Hers can be the womb of all life and of all growth. Or, she can be a witch, whose womb is an oven wherein she'll cook little children for dinner. The old man archetype is an infinite font of wisdom. His is a wisdom which can be so great it seems akin to magic. Thus, the old man may appear in the guise of a wizard, or, negatively, as a demon whose wares are knowledge, but whose price is one's soul. Such archetypes and such grandiose expectations for one's parents lead to that common experience where kids tend to believe that their parents are superhuman. At some point upon the road to conscious awareness, kids get let down. Their dad is not a wizard. Their mother cannot protect them from everything. And eventually, the kid will have to grow up and leave behind their old man and their great mother. The only wisdom and the only comfort the kid will have will be what the kid carries on the inside. Chapter 4, The Hero Myth So far, on our hike over to Young's perspective, we've followed patterns he pointed out, and now, we have all the info we need to get to his trail from where we are. Really, the info has been inside us all along. We've just needed to get better and better orientation to comprehend our inner map. So, okay... Orientation time. We have an archetype for how to perceive children, and we have archetypes for how to perceive adults, and yet we have years for one to physically mature into the other. Often in life, one is either treated like a child or treated like an adult. Even when one knows a young adult, human beings do, despite reality, persist in their expectations regarding that young adult. Every time a father says, To me, you'll always be daddy's little girl. He is demonstrating the persistence of the child archetype. Prepare yourself. This is where Jungian psychology just starts dunking on you. Cultures have ceremonies, like one which marks a transition from childhood into adulthood, directly for the purpose of switching the archetype through which we perceive someone. This is why ceremonies exist. Across cultures, this is their role. Human beings do not understand slow changes. They're bad at understanding that. Thus, like chapter heads marking the transition between different segments of this podcast, human beings benefit from having ceremonies which facilitate the transition between segments of life. Initiation Rites, Funerals, or Marriages Ceremonies like these allow for mental transitions. A girl can become a woman, a boy, a man, the deceased remembered, and two, one. Even the ceremony of a breakup allows a lover to become a stranger. When a rude lover avoids the breakup ceremony, in a method aptly referred to as ghosting, So does the lover leave behind unfinished business. The ceremony avoided leaves emotions unenacted, and the image of the lover is not allowed its transition into stranger. But the image lingers on, haunting the psyche long after the relationship is dead. At a fundamental level, ceremonies are condensed, exaggerated stories which we play an active role in. Human beings understand their lives through symbolic stories. Sometimes, language suffices for understanding these symbolic stories, but acting a role does more. The condensed story one acts out in a ceremony is the story which represents the transition one is undergoing. You don't know me, shouts the girlfriend of five years, as book by book She tosses my 2013 World Book Encyclopedia collection out the window and onto the street, ceremonially signaling where it is that I belong. Ceremonies are symbolic stories, representing the transition. The enacted story does have to be slightly over-the-top impassioned or, in some way, powerful enough that it can reach into the unconscious of participants and there, in the unconscious, trigger a new perspective. For the transition from childhood into adulthood, in a rite of passage, the child acts out a condensed, exaggerated story of transition to adult life. This condensed story is an archetype. There are as many archetypes as there are situations typical to the human experience. As such, not all archetypes are frameworks for judging people with. This archetype is a framework for a story, the archetypal story of the hero myth. There seems to be a universal way humans expect a hero to act, a way which manifests in stories both in languaged stories about heroes and also ritualized stories about heroes. This story is the story of how one proves oneself as an adult. In mythology, a hero is an adult who excels at attributes which a culture admires adults for having. The hero is either of the old man archetype or the great mother archetype, because those are archetypes for venerated adults And so, a hero might excel at being old man wise, though he could just as well excel at some other attribute which old men are admired for possessing, like, perhaps, a great strength in battle, or a commanding rhetoric, or an inscrutable honor. Same for female heroines, but old woman wisdom, old woman strength, old woman rhetoric, or old woman honor. Mythologist Joseph Campbell. In his classic book The Hero with a Thousand Faces points out that the hero myth is comprised of three parts separation initiation and return if you like more words he uses more of them to give the same summary Quote, a hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. End quote. Separation, initiation, return. Although many traditional rites of passage have faded from our society, I know American culture has at least one hero myth which we enact. It's dumb, though. Don't do it. But... On the night a person celebrates their 21st birthday, the celebrant is expected to journey to a bar, there drink 21 shots, and then, only after the celebrant manages to return home without dying, is the celebrant officially accepted as an adult. Separation from home, trial and initiation into adult customs, return as an adult. Drinking 21 shots is deemed an act only super-adults are capable of, and thereby, it forms the catalyst which allows oneself and others to transfer the archetype through which they view the 21-year-old. Carl Jung links the hero myth with the solar myth, that is, the story of the sun. Every night, the sun separates from humanity, journeys through some unknown dark land, and returns to bring its boon of warmth to humankind. The hero myth archetype is theorized to be an internalized repetition of this story. Over and over, the hero myth is told both in the world, every night, and in our cultures, again and again. The hero myth is quite common. Joseph Campbell refers to the hero myth as the monomyth. The hero myth is the one story. It is the story every other story is a variation on. The monomyth is the endless stream of Marvel movies which stretch forward and backward across our history. Whenever human beings tell a story, it is the monomyth that they are telling. It is the hero myth. There's no story if it doesn't have a hero. And... When human beings tell the story of their own lives, it is again the monomyth they tell themselves. Each person stars as their own hero in their own hero myth. Each person is good and is surmounting trials. And, in direct contrast to statistics, each person will overcome the odds and be better than your average Joe. There is a danger of ascribing too much to any one concept of the unconscious. If you look too hard at something, you can be Freud and just claim it and everything is a dilution of sex. The hero myth is the myth in which every human lives. And this isn't just me jack-talking, this is still Jung schooling on us. Jung says the hero myth is the myth in which every person lives. Though, he also warns against too strict or too grandiose a definition of any archetype. The hero myth is everywhere, just as sex is in every phallic-shaped object, but just as there's more to any story than sex, there's also more to any story than the hero myth. But we're talking about the hero myth here, and when one listens to a hero myth, they relate to the hero. They are the hero. There is a hero inside all of us. Everything's the hero myth. So, it only makes sense that our arch-villain would be the monster which has lurked on the periphery of our unconscious for millions of years. Whenever a hero journeys forth from home out into the tall grass, it is always the danger that a snake might await us. Across cultures... The ubiquitous dragon is repeatedly cast into the role of what awaits the hero. In Western cultures, it has been the dragon with which we have decorated each unknown part of our maps. Any journey away from the comfortable is into the lands labeled "hic sunt Dracones, here be dragons. Every story we ever tell, the worst or the greatest story, is the story of every life. It is, again and again, the story of the history of all humankind. Though the serpent is a villain of choice for this story, the hero need not always fight one. Sometimes our hero Beowulf needn't face a dragon. Sometimes our hero can face some big, hairy Grendel. But, we're talking about the dragon this episode. This episode's constellation is the dragon Draco. In Greek mythology, it is said that Draco is the monstrous dragon Ladon, whom Heracles is set against in the 11th of his 12 labors. Currently, we are talking about the hero myth archetype, so it seems only appropriate that now is the perfect time to tell a hero myth. And, as the serpent Ladon appears five sixths of the way through the Heracles story, and we ourselves are just about to hit the fifth of my six chapters, it seems like a perfect time to look up at the stars. We still have the self archetype to talk about, but a full understanding of the self will wait. For now, I would like to direct your imagination skyward in Chapter 5, Heracles vs. Ladon: The Ultimate Showdown. By now, hopefully, you feel like a hero journeying forth from the safety of the beaten path. But this hike has been all talk so far, and actions are more psychologically impactful than talk. So, before we can return from our hike with the boon of knowledge, it behooves us to act out the role of the hero and find the dragon. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, seek a winding path of stars between ursa major and its child ursa minor that there's the sleepless watcher laid on 100 heads he has and never do all 100 dip below the horizon his body curves in a great backwards s the lower half of which forms a semicircle round the little dipper ursa minor the tail of this semicircular body Almost reaches a line that you could make between the right side of the Big Dipper's square and Polaris. The bottom semicircle starts in between the dippers and curves around. The upper curve of Draco's body is squatter and its stars brighter. This upper half of the backwards S curves back and ends in a diamond of four stars where as many heads might writhe. Two of the four stars which comprise his ferocious heads are fairly bright, so maybe start with those and from them trace the backwards S. Hopefully, you can find this enormous sky serpent with less difficulty than Heracles had. Heracles? You've probably heard of Heracles. Son of the divine Zeus and the mortal Elkmene, Heracles was one who towered over normal men. He was part god and part man, but there was a primal animal ferocity to him as well. He eschewed the clothing of civilization and instead depended upon the pelt of the Nemean lion draped over his bare chest to keep himself warm. He was the last of Zeus's sons and the strongest of all men, a lion dressed in lion's clothing, and... So great a hero was he, that, from one shore of the Mediterranean to the other, mighty Heracles needed no introduction. The people knew him primarily for the twelve labors he performed in service to the selfish king Eurystheus. How this came to be, well, that's a story for another time. Suffice it to say, Heracles was serving penance. He'd committed a crime, and now He'd done about eight years of time before he was given his 11th labor. For this labor, our hero was given a task more dangerous and more impossible than any previous labor. Heracles was to retrieve golden apples from the Garden of the Hesperides. Now, you might wonder, apple picking? What's so impossible about apple picking? I will tell you. These were not your ordinary, somewhat mushy, $1.49 a pound golden apples. Legend held that whosoever chomped of these apples never would feel the chomp of death. And legend went on to say that the goddess Hera herself had set hundred-headed Ladon to guard the apples. With a hundred heads to work with, a mortal Ladon could rest some heads while others kept vigil. Thus, legend concluded... No man, nor God, could sneak past his many gazes. The foremost problem facing Heracles was that everything about the apples was legendary. The garden's existence itself was legendary. No map plotted the location of the Hesperides. The garden was, you could say, where there be dragons. So, to find the way, Heracles left Eurystheus' kingdom to seek out old man Nereus, whose knowledge was as vast as the seas themselves. Finding Nereus, though, came with its own difficulties. After all, a shape-shifting sea god can be a hard man to track down. Only with the help of some friendly water nymphs did Heracles manage it. He traced the old man to a river grotto in northern Illyria, and there got a hold of the guy. Yet. It is not in the nature of water to be held to. No sooner did our hero confront Nereus than the old man made to slip away. Slippery as an eel was old Nereus, especially when shapeshifted into an eel. Still, Heracles' hairy arms grabbed, and like Velcro they held him. And though Nereus might shift from eel to weasel to grizzly bear, He could not weasel out of such arms with any shape he brought to bear. Eventually, Heracles wrestled what he wanted to know out of Nereus. The sea god, in the form of a map, informed Heracles of an island from where the Hesperides could be reached. Far across the waves, at Oceanus' western extent, there was the island upon which Atlas held aloft the celestial heavens, If Heracles were to go there, and were to climb atop Atlas, then he could make his way up to the heavens wherein the golden apples shone. Before Heracles made off, however, Nereus, who generally knew how things shape out, cautioned Heracles about the immortal serpent laid on. hundred heads, Heracles! Not man nor god can sneak past that many heads!' Though you be strong, you have but two hands to hold back Ladon, while Ladon, Ladon has 100 heads. To best the fierce watcher Ladon, you'll have to try something other than your fists for a change. So saying, Nereus's shape began to change. What shape the sea god took to escape from Heracles' grip, Heracles didn't notice. Nereus had become an afterthought. Heracles was deep in contemplation about what the old man had said. Try something other than my fists, eh? Heracles thought as he idly fingered his bow. From Illyria, which is just north of Greece, Heracles headed not to Atlas. Instead, he hiked east to the Caucasus Mountains, maybe about 1,500 miles away. Hup, 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 hup. Heracles needed a thief, but, having been warned, he sought not man, nor god, but titan. Throughout all the stories of Greek mythology, no greater thief there was than Prometheus. He it was who stole the god's fire, and gave it to man. Did a real slick job of it, too. Walked right out the gates of Olympus, fire hidden inside a fennel stalk, Zeus, none the wiser, till it was too late. Prometheus was an immortal, blessed with an undying body. But for this crime, Zeus sentenced him to daily have his liver eaten out of him, after which, daily, his immortal body would regrow his liver. When Heracles climbed his way up, hup, 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 to the cold peak where Prometheus was chained, Like the classic heroes the two of them were, they immediately started firing one-liners. Hey Prometheus, what are you doing up here? Just chilling? Heracles, humor is it? I'm afraid having one's organs eaten every day is bad for one's humors, Prometheus responded. They carried on in such a manner till the time of Prometheus's daily punishment came. And Zeus's eagle swept down to feast upon Prometheus's liver. Heracles was ready for this, and raising his bow cool as the mountain air, said, "I don't remember ordering delivery," and shot the eagle down. Heracles broke Prometheus's chains and allowed Prometheus to literally scratch his own back in exchange for which. Heracles had hoped Prometheus would, metaphorically, scratch Heracles' back, and help Heracles accomplish his labor. But Prometheus could do no such thing. I can't, big man. Listen, even if I thought I could get past old Ladon, which I don't, I've put the life of crime behind me. But, I'll tell you what, I got a brother, dumb as a mountain, but that don't mean I don't love him old dude, acts like he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, though, he don't. That's a common misunderstanding perpetuated throughout modern culture. He carries the weight of the celestial heavens, goes by the name of Atlas. He's on good terms with the dragon. Get him to retrieve the apples in your stead, and that way, you can avoid the whole dragon in general. Heracles had to head Atlas's way anyway. So, seemed like a good enough plan, and off Heracles went back across the map. Which, depending on where Heracles' boat was, would be about 3,000 miles to the western coast of Europe. Then, maybe that much more to where the sun rests at night. Hup, hop, 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 Shoo, 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 shoo. Crossing the whole of the Atlantic Ocean, which, incidentally, gets its name from Atlas... Heracles arrived at a mountainous island. Here, the earth rose up to meet where the sky came down. Fertility was bountiful in both land and sky at the island where the sun would rest. Our hero hiked up to Atlas, Hup, 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 who knelt at the island's peak, the sky like a cavernous ceiling coming down to strain his ever aching shoulders. Heracles took in the scene and realized he'd have to use his head to solve this problem. So, he scooched over next to Atlas and, placing his own head beneath the heavens, offered to take a weight off of Atlas's shoulders, literally. If Atlas would metaphorically take one off Heracles and go retrieve the apples in his stead. Atlas would take any excuse at all to move, and allowed the full burden of the sky to rest on Heracles' shoulders as he stretched his limbs and then scampered his way up into the heavens. This island was where the sun rested and hung out, so Heracles couldn't judge the passage of time by the sun's movement. After holding up the sky for what seemed like forever, but... Could have been very little time, as I said, hard to tell. Heracles heard at last the sounds of Atlas returning down the sky. In his arms, Atlas held several bright golden apples. But, standing before Heracles, Atlas was reluctant to return to his post. I like freedom, Atlas told Heracles, and offered to deliver the golden apples in Heracles' stead, and then he'd come back. At this, Heracles was torn up inside, because of the strain of the sky, and because he could not support such a great mass for as long as it would take Atlas to return, if Atlas did ever return. And so, Heracles lied. Good plan, Atlas. It's only that I chose an uncomfortable stance, and I'd like to place a cushion on my neck. Could you hold up the heavens while I eat an energy bar and adjust? Sure, anything for you, great hero, Atlas agreed. But as soon as Atlas had set down the golden apples and taken back his place beneath the heavens, Heracles took the apples and just peaced out, literally free from the burden of carrying the heavens and apparently metaphorically free of any burden of having deceived Atlas. Heracles brought the apples all the way back to King Eurystheus. Hup, hop, hup, hop, hup, 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 hup. Though, after all the trouble Heracles went through, the king refused the apples. Eurystheus had no wish to bring Hera's wrath upon himself. His main objective in giving Heracles this labor had been getting Heracles killed, and that hadn't worked. Next time, though, envious Eurystheus was sure Heracles would die, for, in his next labor, the king would ask Heracles to retrieve something from the underworld. That, however, is a story for another time. Chapter 6. Conclusion and the Self Regarding the contents of the Heracles myth, I again feel compelled to point out Atlas does not hold up the earth. If you feel betrayed because Ayn Rand wrote a book where the whole time she was purporting a false belief, then yeah, I feel you. Ayn Rand betrayed me too. Also, in other versions of this myth, Heracles does face off against the serpent Ladon and slay it. Although a fight between demigod and a mortal snake might seem the more typical climax of the archetypal hero myth It was not the ending I wanted to go with. The story of Heracles' twelve labors, when taken as a whole, is a redemption story. It is the story of a man working off the debt he incurred when he committed a crime, and it takes him about ten years to work off that debt. In his subsequent and final labor, he does go down to the underworld, where he can metaphorically die and be reborn, freed from the criminal burden of his old life. So, although Heracles does solve a lot of his problems with his fists, I wanted to imagine that he'd learn and develop as a human being. Maybe become a little more self-aware after so many labors. In Jungian terms, humans, when not very consciously aware, are controlled by their archetypes. Jungian self-development, comes as a process of becoming more aware of one's archetypes, and in so doing, becoming in balance with their influence. By lessening their influence, one can develop into an individual. So I'll let younger Heracles be more controlled by his battle-strong heroic archetype, and I'll take older Heracles as becoming aware of his typical hero actions and changing, if only slightly. He is, after all, still a hero. When people are not busy being angry at some shadow projection, or feeling lost in love over some anima projection, they spend their time living within their own hero myth. This is a healthy myth to live in. If a person spends too much time around those who don't consider them a hero, and, instead, act as if the person's contributions are worthless... Or, if the person themselves acts as if their own contributions are worthless, that is psychologically unhealthy. For a long time, Jung considered himself in the role of a hero. A hero who plunged into the mysteries of the unconscious, and there, faced the demons inside of his own mind. Jung believed that he faced these demons for the sake of being a better psychiatrist. He would not ask his patients to face demons, which he himself was not willing to face. Eventually, Young felt compelled to abandon this self-identification with the hero. He did so after, as was typical for Young, a dream. It was a dream which, when Young awoke, at first he couldn't understand. He made to fall back asleep, and then, teetering in and out of consciousness, Young heard a voice. And the voice spoke to Jung, saying, If you do not understand this dream, you must shoot yourself. I mentioned dreams are very important to Jung, yes, and I also foreshadowed that Young had a gun, like all Swiss people do. He kept his loaded revolver in the drawer of his night table beside his bed. So, one night, Young's life wavered on the edge of consciousness. On one side awareness and life, on the other, incomprehension and death. In this particular dream, Jung had dreamt of the legendary German hero Siegfried, who, it should be noted, is a hero known for slaying a dragon. Jung described the dream as, quote, I was with an unknown brown-skinned man, a savage, in a lonely Rocky Mountain landscape. It was before dawn, the eastern sky was already bright, and the stars fading. Then, I heard Siegfried's horn sounding over the mountains, and I knew that we had to kill him. We were armed with rifles, and lay in wait for him on a narrow path over the rocks. Then, Siegfried appeared high up on the crest of the mountains in the first ray of the rising sun. On a chariot made of the bones of the dead, he drove at furious speed down the precipitous slope. When he turned a corner, we shot at him, and he plunged down, struck dead. Filled with disgust and remorse for having destroyed something so great and beautiful, I turned to flee, impelled by the fear that the murder might be discovered. But a tremendous downfall of rain began, and I knew that it would wipe out all traces of the dead. I had escaped the danger of discovery. Life could go on, but an unbearable feeling of guilt remained. Jung didn't end up shooting himself because he came to understand that one shouldn't put their life on the line over the unconscious. Siegfried, in the dream, was the archetypal hero with whom Jung identified. The archetypal hero is one who tries to impose his or her will upon whatever he or she faces. Young was in the midst of facing his unconscious, upon which he wished to impose his own will. The dream was how the unconscious told Young that that wasn't going to happen. The dream signified that Young had to abandon the hero's will, that is, Young had to kill his identification with a hero, just as he had killed Dream Siegfried. Yes, yes, being a hero is healthy, and you get to say cool lines, but as cool as being a hero is, it was a burden Young's unconscious did not wish Young to live with. The unconscious is not something any hero can impose his or her will upon. The unconscious is not a dragon to be slain. The unconscious is a dragon. It is a hero, too. Just as it is also the myth which connects hero and dragon. The unconscious is a shadow. It is an anima. It is a child, a mother, an old man, and a plethora of other archetypes I'm not describing here. None of these are archetypes which Jung had to slay. Jung had to make peace and live with the unconscious. And you can only make peace through... Mutual understanding Alright, this brings me to the one final archetype which I'd like to end with The self is the name of the archetype Jung referred to as the archetype of all archetypes The self archetype is the archetype for the whole of everything. It is the archetype for perceiving one complete universe so It gets called the archetype of all archetypes because its scope encompasses everything, including the other archetypes. It is still, you know, just another structure in our minds, but the influence of that structure is very inclusive. This self is the archetype which led Jung to say that the purpose of life is to extend your consciousness. For the self pushes people to do just that. When you don't relate to the self-archetype, the self-archetype still relates to you, and it's there in your mind, making you feel out of balance for not relating to it. When you do relate to the self-archetype, then you identify with everything, and so you're in balance with everything in your mind. If you are on the path of extending conscious awareness and you're seeking balance with one of the archetypes, it is the self which gives you the perspective to facilitate this. The self is the archetype for the vast universe. So, it's the archetype which gives you the most distance from which you can objectively analyze another archetype. And then, objectively from that distance, find a way to balance the other archetype's influence. In order to analyze an archetype, you do have to align your mind with some archetype, because archetypes are all your mind has. The self is the best archetype to align with for this analysis. For Jung, aligning and identifying with the self required this whole process. Only after learning, understanding, and then distancing from the other archetypes could one find oneself separated from those archetypes and in the archetype of completeness and awareness. Then, once found there, one could be able to learn about the self. When Jung found the self and then became able to learn about it and identify with it, it allowed his mental state to return to a level of calmness. Jung explained the process of identifying with the self, saying, So, when you relate to your own transcendental center, you initiate a process of conscious development which leads to oneness and wholeness. You no longer see yourself as an isolated point on the periphery, but as the one in the center. Only subjective consciousness is isolate. When it relates to its center, it is integrated into wholeness. It took Jung several years to reach such peace with his mind. After reaching such inner peace, Jung once more felt able to return to giving lectures and to return to the activities of his daily life. Okay, conclusion time. Young made peace with his unconscious. He made peace with the dragon in his mind. Humanity has progressed a long way, and we've erased the dragon from the map. But the dragon still exists in one's mind, and there is no way to erase it. One can only identify and tame it. Like in that DreamWorks movie. Well, I'm Jack Baston. This has been an episode of Stellar Stories. Thank you for listening. I i am going to bed. I really wanted to make a shorter episode, but I also am the type of person who couldn't cut two dream sequences from this episode, so I really only have myself to blame. Anyway, any failure to elucidate Jungian ideas, or any failure on my part to understand Jungian ideas, I blame entirely on Jung. If you like me, or my podcast, prove it by rating and reviewing it.